This is The Interchange, conversations about the energy transition from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor-in-chief in Boston with our senior VP, Shale Khan. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. If you can believe it, it's been 15 years since Cape Wind, the project meant to be America's first offshore wind farm, was proposed. For years, the 130-turbine, 450-megawatt project was held up as the start of an entirely new industry in the U.S., But stalwart legal opposition and project financing problems eventually brought the project down. The offshore wind industry is now virtually all in Europe. In 2001, Europe had a few hundred megawatts of offshore wind projects when Cape Wind was first proposed. Today, it has nearly 13,000 megawatts of capacity, and developers are on track to make offshore wind the cheapest form of new electricity. In fact, new offshore wind projects are now beating government 2020 price estimates set a few years back. And so we come to the question that's been reverberating through clean energy circles for the last decade and a half. When will America finally capture a piece of this industry? So this week, we're joined by someone who's well-equipped to answer that question, Alicia Barton. Alicia is the former director of the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, the former chief of operations at Sun Edison's Global Utility Group, and is now the co-chair of the clean tech practice at the global law firm Foley Hoag. She's here with us in the Boston office. Hey, Alicia. Hey, Stephen. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, Let's talk about where offshore wind is at to get everyone on the same page. Last year, we saw the first commercial offshore wind farm developed off the coast of Rhode Island, the Block Island Wind Farm, this 30 megawatt project. Does that say anything about momentum here in the U.S.? Is this a one-off project, or is it something that represents true momentum in the offshore wind industry? Well, from where I sit, the Block Island project is a huge milestone for the U.S. offshore wind industry. Um, It represents a moment where, for the first time, we sitting here in the United States can say we actually have steel in the water, as they say, in the offshore wind business. Um, And it was a long time coming, to say the least. It's a a small project. Uh, You mentioned at the top, it's 30 megawatts. And, uh, you know, so by global estimates, it's a bit of a pilot scale, but um, represents a huge step forward from where we've been working towards this moment for, as you said, over a decade. And for people who don't, who aren't super steeped in the world of offshore wind and all of its trials and tribulations, what has been the fundamental holdup? Why did it take us 15 years to get 30 megawatts in the ground? Or in the, I'm sorry, in the water? That's a great question, Shale, but one that uh, will take a little bit, a little bit of time to unpack. I think um, there's, uh, you know, there's been any any number of, of reasons why offshore wind has been slow to take off in the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, probably price first and, and foremost amongst them, um, which is, you know, a, a little bit of a chicken and egg situation where first generation projects are always going to be more costly uh, than projects that you see after an industry has had time to mature and reach. A certain uh, a certain scale where you can um, deploy projects more cost effectively, um, and I think that you know has been sort of one of the one of the key reasons why you know we haven't seen offshore wind take off at the same rate that we've seen the uh, solar and land based wind uh, deployed in the U.S. But you can't really separate it also from a lot of the the siting and opposition issues that have certainly been in the background all along. Let's unpack these one at a time and talk about pricing first before we get into the regulatory hurdles here in the U.S. Europe has been trying to develop this industry for quite some time now, and with now a decade and a half of experience, almost two decades of experience, new projects with these massive seven megawatt turbines um, and a sophisticated installation process. These new projects are coming in at $120 a megawatt hour. And 
that pricing is below where uh, the UK government and other European officials thought uh, developers would be and uh, at this point, and also competitive with all sorts of other new forms of generation. And in the next couple of years, we'll just hands down be one of the cheapest forms of generation throughout Europe. Here in the US, prices uh, are probably going to be a lot higher because we just don't have a mature industry, because we have to import a lot of equipment. We don't have a lot of the infrastructure set up. Um, how might pricing compare to Europe uh, here in the United States because our industry is so immature? Well, we, we have we have essentially a couple of data points on that right now, which are early data points and I think um, not fully indicative of where prices will go. But as we sit here today, you have the Block Island project, which uh, is operational, and that's uh, fantastic and exciting. But that is a bit of a unique situation. You were uh, uh, in a case where the uh, power for that project was replacing essentially diesel fuel on Block Island, which was very high price. So the Block Island contract, which comes in at about, um, starts at about 25 cents and uh, goes uh, goes up from there is um, something that is one price point that we have, but obviously not one that would indicate uh, a lot of market competitiveness if we saw prices stay in that same range. The uh, I think the other data point we have, and and this is an exciting, relatively recent development, is uh, the 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 South Fork uh, wind project, which was selected by the Long Island Power Authority for a 90 megawatt power purchase agreement, um, and that uh, gets much closer to the neighborhood of something that looks uh, very cost competitive, at least in in the short term, and again in the situation where you may have other costly alternatives. Uh, to the best of my understanding, I think that contract starts somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 17 cents. Um, and that is, uh, uh, again, a 20-year contract for power in a situation where they ran a competitive process, actually, an offshore win, uh, to many people's surprise, actually beat out other, other conventional sources of generation for that contract. So as we talk about those numbers, you know, it makes it, it harkens back for me to the first wave of big utility scale solar contracts that were getting signed in California, which were, you know, there was a whole set of them to meet California's RPS in like 2009, 2010 that were in the 18 to 20 cent range, which all got built out and like built an industry for utility scale solar where, where contracts are now sub five cents. But at the time, people looked at those and certainly thereafter and said, oh man, those are really expensive contracts. Like people are upset about what ratepayers are paying for that in California. But I guess the question with offshore wind is, can you imagine a similar price curve where you can sign a 17 cent per kilowatt hour contract today, but in five or 10 years, we're down at five cents or even less. And I think there are some examples in Europe, potentially even now, of getting down into that price range. Yeah, you absolutely can imagine it um, because, as you said, we've seen this play out in the European markets, which has been really exciting. So, um, Stephen, you referenced a $120 a megawatt hour, and I think that is, you know, in the range of, of the average project price that we see in, in European markets like the United Kingdom. But there were recent uh, uh, tenders in the last few months, both in Denmark and the Netherlands, where you saw, uh, to many people's surprise, prices come in um, in the 
50 to $60 a megawatt hour price range, which, you know, there's a lot of speculation about whether those are uh, really indicative of the actual market price or whether the competitive auction really drove um, drove uh, some, some outcomes that were a little bit um, more unusual. But in any event, they're a data point that I think really reinforces the notion that we can replay that movie we saw in solar with offshore wind if if we do the things we need to do to get it right. With pricing higher here in the U.S., are there certain applications for offshore wind farms that make sense first, like the Block Island wind farm, which was directly replacing diesel? Is that the type of project development that we're going to see where there are specific local use cases where higher cost offshore wind power can offset um, localized expensive generation? That may be one of the scenarios that um, that will drive some deployment of offshore wind. But I would actually argue that we're going to see uh, the next generation of projects uh, be much more full commercial scale. And and they are certainly driven by the, uh, uh, the economics of the market that they're in and the fundamentals. So um, to take a step back, where you see a lot of the activity these days in offshore wind is in the northeast of the United States. Uh, states like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York are really the ones kind of leading the way at the moment towards what looks like real full commercial scale deployment of offshore wind. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that the wind resource is really excellent uh, off the eastern seaboard, uh, particularly the farther north you go. Some people call it the Saudi Arabia of uh, of offshore wind uh, in reference to the abundance of the wind resource that's there. You also have comparatively shallow water depths, and that's one of the key challenges for offshore wind. So these are are massive, massive projects, and they are constructed in you know what what are really complicated marine environments. So um, they're much more cost effective if you can reduce the engineering and materials needed to uh, deploy those projects. Meaning you know in shallow in shallower waters. That's a pretty substantial advantage for the Northeast too, because in the North Sea you have depths that are far greater. And if even building these projects 10 miles off the coast of the Atlantic seaboard, you have relatively shallow waters compared to some European sites. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's why it's so attractive, and that's why there has been historic interest going back, you know, even more than a decade now in this resource. Um, although it's been slow to take off, the the last piece that you have in terms of market fundamentals is the proximity to load. Right, you have proximity to uh, cities like Boston and New York, and uh, the relatively congested part of the United States that is uh, along the uh, the East Coast in uh, uh, New York and New England North. And uh, they also have relatively high uh, electricity prices. So offshore wind it can be more competitive in those instances where you have, you know, the, the, the right wind resource, the ability to deploy in uh, attractive areas where uh, the water is not too deep. And you can tie pretty directly into a market that is a good fit for the type of energy you're selling. It's kind of a good segue into one thing that I've been wondering about offshore wind as it develops, which is sort of who are going to be the players that build this market? Because, you know, all the things you're talking about are, are deep engineering challenges. These are these are harder to build than your standard traditional onshore wind or utility scale solar project. And I wonder whether, you know, we have a... a leaders get the what's the expression leaders get the arrows and followers get the settlement or something like that I, i'm positive i butchered it but the point being you know the the first wave of projects cape wind being the perfect example of that we're sort of like a, a bottoms up 
you know, new entrant sort of attempt at building a new industry where the impression that I get is that now the developers that are building the projects that are winning these bids are like much more larger, more established. In some cases, you know, oil and gas super majors like Statoil, which won part of the bid in New York. So I'm curious how you think that sort of difference in who's who's developing the projects relates to the maturity of the market. Well, I think it, you absolutely are seeing a, a bit of a shift here. So not only Cape Wind, which was, um, you know, essentially a, a Massachusetts-based independent power uh, uh, developer uh, that had a long history in developing conventional generation power plants and had moved into the offshore wind business as as one data point. Um, uh, Block Island Wind Farm, which we've talked a lot about, is developed by a company called Deepwater Wind based in Rhode Island, and they are backed by, by private equity um, DE Shaw is their their private equity backer. Those look like the models for uh, an early market where you have capital that uh, likes the the risk-reward scenario that, uh, that Offshore Wind provides. Now, fast forward a few years later, what we are seeing is uh, enormous companies with a, a, a huge track record of development in Europe moving into the offshore wind market. And they are really uh, promising a few things, and that is to bring not only their engineering and construction expertise, and uh, to a great degree, these are these are really marine logistics projects, and they take the kind of capabilities uh, that a company like Statoil has or some of the others that, that we'll come to in a moment. Um, but also uh, uh, often have a lower cost of capital as well. And uh, again, represent the type of development mindset that you see in a more mature market, even though we, we haven't actually seen offshore wind deployed uh, at a commercial scale yet in the United States. I would add a long time horizon, right? I mean, one of the other things that seems to be endemic in these projects is they take forever from inception to operation, which is also true of the types of projects, Statoil and other big you know, engineering-based oil companies are used to doing when they want to build a pipeline or they want to drill somewhere, you know, they have to put a lot of capital behind it. It's going to take a decade between then and when they actually start generating revenue from it. So they can take that long time horizon where, you know, if you're private equity backed, oftentimes you don't have that kind of luxury. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Although I have to, I have to add on behalf of those of us that are, are working to uh, to push forward the U.S. offshore wind market, we we do hope we can get project timelines down below a decade sometime soon. Um, yeah. So you mentioned a few companies. You mentioned Deepwater Wind. You mentioned Cape Wind, and then Statoil is sort of one of the new entrants. Who else is out there now? Well, the largest offshore wind developer in the world right now is a company called Dong Energy, and uh, they are a company out of Denmark that uh, started in the oil and gas industry and, uh, you know, over the last uh, about a decade or so has built, uh, you know, the leading offshore wind business in the world. They moved in, uh, I want to say about a year and a half or two years ago into the Massachusetts market, just as they saw the opportunity becoming, you know, more ripe for uh, a real market to develop in the United States. And it's really interesting because I do think, uh, you know, the, a company like Dong that shows up with a, a, a track record to say, we've built these projects at scale. We have, um, 
uh, an ability to show uh, the cost declines that we've seen in Europe and that we think we can re- replicate the same thing here in the United States. That was a real game changer in the on, in the public policy conversations that were happening uh, in the state of Massachusetts at the time. Um, you know, Massachusetts is a state that had been living with uh, this dream, uh, if you will, of offshore wind for many, many years. And, it, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of ups and downs in that story along the way. But I do think one real turning point was the entrance of players like Dong to the market to bring some credibility and actual track record of having deployed this in a significant way um, to that conversation. Why? Why did Dong come in? Because the the situation in Massachusetts was looking kind of bleak. I mean, you might characterize it differently because you were involved in this for so many years. But one could say that the the dream for offshore wind turned into a nightmare uh, as the Cape Wind debacle unfolded. Can as, you walk through, just give like a brief history of that? Debacle, I think Alicia is probably better equipped to give the history of Cape Wind, <laughs> and then maybe we can use that as a jumping off point to talk about policy afterward and what attracted these companies to the state and to other states like New York and Rhode Island and so forth. Yeah, happy to rewind the tape a little bit and set the stage for the moment that uh, that we're seeing here today with uh, uh, all the promise and excitement it has, which really did come as a result of some uh, some very challenging moments. I don't know if I would, you know, personally call it a nightmare, but I will say that I I do uh, bear a lot of um, uh, battle scars, if you will, from from the ups and downs of the Cape Wind project. And I think that's uh, fair to say of anyone that that spent time working on that project. So um, for for your listeners that didn't follow it, I think uh, Cape Wind, you know, really was a saga and a very dramatic tale about which um, uh, books have literally been written and movies made. Uh, it, it has, uh, you know, its heroes and its villains and 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 everything that makes for a really good story. What um, what really happened was, uh, you know, uh, starting back, you know, in the sort of mid 2000s, um, Cape Wind decided to propose this project off the coast of Massachusetts in Nantucket Sound in a location that really is relatively close to residences on Cape Cod. It's about it was planned to be about three miles offshore, which is you know relatively close and and to a degree that um, that certainly caught the attention and uh, widespread opposition from many of the neighbors and uh, and uh, abutters to the project who didn't want to see an industrial energy project. Uh, in their backyard, so to speak. By the way, the book that was written on this, and I think two thousand seven, is quite a fascinating story. And I recommend if people do want to revisit this, it's an interesting piece of history. I also have some vague recollection of a Daily Show episode where Jon Stewart was making fun of the Kennedys. Is that right? The Kennedy family who was in opposition to this despite loving wind because they own property on Cape Cod and didn't want the the blight of the, the offshore wind farm in their in their beach view. And the author of that book was on the Daily Sh- that Daily Show episode. Yeah, that's right. Famously, um, Ted Kennedy and some of the other members of the Kennedy family were in staunch opposition to Cape Wind. And actually, you know, did uh, the senator, the late senator, did um, actually try to use his weight quite a bit to, to slow down the development of that project. It was it was contentious for so many years, but it did slowly gain political support over time. So, for example... 
Mitt Romney was the governor of Massachusetts. He was highly opposed to the project and made that very known. Uh, when Governor Deval Patrick got elected and took office in early 2007, one of the first things he did was uh, actually to sign the environmental approvals for Cape Wind and, and through his support behind the project as a candidate and then as a governor, uh, which set the stage for what looked like the more promising <laughs> chapters of, of the Cape Wind story. So the, the project eventually did move through permitting, which took many, many many years, but uh, but did get there. There were appeals of virtually every single permit that was issued to the project. And I think over time, there were north of 30 different lawsuits filed against uh, the project. Uh, Cape Wind won uh, virtually all of those lawsuits. Some of them were withdrawn. But in 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 cumulative effect, that that type of uh, delay and the the difficulty of getting past the lawsuits and the difficulty of convincing uh, the financiers of the project that they would ultimately prevail in the lawsuits ultimately proved to be a pretty strong headwind for the project. So they failed to close uh, a portion of their financing, and then the utilities who had entered into a contract with Cape Wind backed out. Right? Is that 2014? Yes, that's correct. It was actually, it was in January 2015, ironically, just as Governor Patrick was leaving office. So it really was, um, uh, you know, an eight-year span of of the state of Massachusetts uh, trying to facilitate the development of Cape Wind as, as, a, as an entrant to the offshore wind market. It was never about that one project, but it was about what that project stood for in terms of a new energy resource for America. So then, so then fast forward and Massachusetts passes a bill that has a an offshore wind target in it. But correct me if I'm wrong, Cape Wind is not allowed to bid on that. That's correct. Uh, to to I have to say, to my surprise, coming out of the uh, the um, the Cape Wind uh, disappointment and and all the fallout from that, it was it was about a year and a half later that this legislation actually was passed to enable other projects to go forward and to say, um, you know, we're moving past this one project. And in fact, as you said, Shale, the the legislation specifically really kind of carves out the project from being able to compete. They specify that projects have to hold a lease. For from the federal government after 2012, which was was really designed to prevent Cape Wind from coming back from the grave, so to speak, and and uh, carrying with it, you know, all the baggage that it has from those many years. And let's put this into perspective. This is a historic piece of legislation because it sets a 1600 megawatt target for offshore wind. And it was signed into law by Charlie Baker, a guy who previously was skeptical of the Cape Wind project. Charlie Baker, the the current governor of the state of Massachusetts. Exactly, the current Republican governor. And so you've leveraged all this new support for offshore wind in Massachusetts, despite the challenges and opposition to Cape Wind. What changed politically? And what pieces were in place to make lawmakers and also the governor say, this is something worth backing? Well, a couple of things. And uh, again, I do think taking Cape Wind off the table, so to speak, in those conversations really uh, helped, to say the least. It, it allowed people to really take the personalities out of it, take the uh, the the baggage and the history and, and look forward to, like I said, the fact that the market fundamentals are really strong for offshore wind off the coast of Massachusetts. And the promise has always been there. Really, the thing that gets people excited is not just uh, the ability to uh, have renewable energy at scale in Massachusetts, which is something difficult to do onshore because we're a relatively small state here, but to, to have the job creation that comes with it. And that was a big piece of the political support for, for this bill. 
Down on the south coast of Massachusetts, they have been positioning themselves for years as uh, the eventual home and hub for the United States offshore wind market. That really is uh, centered uh, in large part in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where uh, the mayor and the rest of the city there have been very aggressively uh, supporting the deployment of offshore wind and where the state of Massachusetts invested in port infrastructure to help that industry take shape. Moving from there, there were other leaders on the South Coast in the state legislature in Massachusetts that really uh, saw that vision and bought into it, uh, including uh, uh, State Representative Pat Haddad, who uh, really championed the cause. And she holds a leadership position in uh, the House here in Massachusetts. And it was, I think, the combination of uh, someone in leadership in the legislative side believing in uh, the economic development promise of offshore wind along with the fact that, uh, you know, Massachusetts really is facing a number of constraints on its energy supply, and that situation was becoming more acute. Uh, The bill that ultimately passed was called an act to promote energy diversity, and that's a a concept that was really baked into this, um, was, you know, bringing a new resource at scale to help replace retiring coal and nuclear facilities that are are leaving uh, New England in in large numbers. And uh, and again, the, 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 the climate goals as well. Um, Massachusetts has a requirement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 80 percent by 2050, as, as a number of other states do. And it's, uh, it's going to be hard uh, potentially for Massachusetts to get there without the contribution from offshore wind. I want to talk about that New Bedford facility, which was um, approved and built when you were CEO of MassCEC. Is that correct? Well, it was the project was already underway, but we did go to construction and complete construction while I was CEO of MassCEC. And that was initially designed to support equipment coming in for the Cape Wind project, correct? They were going to use that for a couple of years as that project got built out. And then they had to walk back on use of that terminal because you know, they, the utilities walked away from the agreement. And that was a sort of its own political issue in and of itself. And I know Mass CEC has worked over the years to bring other leaseholders in. You brought Gamesa in for six months. You've had some solar development on the, the property. And last fall, Dong Energy, this big European developer, came in and said, we intend to use this facility as we start developing projects. So you have this letter of intent that shows some promise that the facility will get used. But again, this was kind of its own political uh, kerfuffle. And it kind of shows that this is a difficult sector because you need to develop the infrastructure to support these projects. But because of the long lead times and the legal complications associated with building these projects, it matching exactly when you build infrastructure and support infrastructure with when the projects themselves get built is kind of difficult. Can you speak to that? Certainly. Well, I I would agree that the story of the New Bedford Marine Commerce Terminal does point out some of the challenges of investing in the type of infrastructure that will allow the United States to actually uh, deploy offshore wind at scale. It's not something uh, that we're well set up to do right now. So there really are going to be real infrastructure investments that need to be made. I would quibble maybe with the characterization that the facility was uh, solely designed for Cape Wind or um, 
was really uh, that its fates would uh, be tied specifically to that project. Um, the Marine Commerce Terminal in New Bedford represents the first purpose-built infrastructure in the United States to support the offshore wind industry. And there's no doubt about it that Cape Wind was the catalyst for really green lighting that investment. Um, the timeline of Cape Wind was critical to uh, the timeline of construction for the facility because we didn't want to miss that opportunity and because, frankly, we needed a facility like that to actually accomplish the project. But the facility uh, has been designed with a a 50-year lifespan and was always built with a long-term view for uh, the offshore wind industry in mind. Um, It's not something we knew from the beginning that it wasn't something that was going to happen overnight. And while we were disappointed that uh, Cape Wind didn't arrive on time when the facility was completed as we had originally envisioned. Uh, I don't think that's the end of the story for that facility. And as you know, as you noted, um, and, and I just make a minor correction, not only Dong uh, signed a letter of intent to use that facility, but each of the three holders of leases off the coast of Massachusetts have signed an identical letter of intent to use that facility uh, if and when they are awarded um, essentially a power, uh, power purchase agreement under the Massachusetts legislation to go to construction. So then what is the what's the calculation that you're making when you're thinking about how to support this type of infrastructure when you see this as a 50 year investment, but you know that um, there are challenges in matching up with project timelines, that this is a nascent industry and that you're probably going to have some, you know, political conflict in the short term um, over these types of investments. Massachusetts has largely been very supportive of this industry, but there are bumps in the road. And um, I'm, I'm just curious, like, how you think about this in the public sector when you're making these long in, these long horizon investments to support an industry that might not materialize overnight? Well, it really increases the pressure to, to be thoughtful and I think uh, to get it right. And look, making long-term decisions is never easy for public policymakers because the, the pressures are, are always there to show results quickly. But when you really take a step back and, and take a hard look at the options available to states like Massachusetts, uh, who, as I mentioned, needs to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, in time for that 2050 deadline, or states like New York that have now set an even more near-term uh, requirement to achieve 50% renewable energy by 2030 under the, the clean um the clean energy standard that uh, that has been put in place in New York, you quickly realize that um, that this is a resource that needs to be brought to the conversation. And even though it is difficult, you know we've got to start working now to put those building bo- blocks in place. We've talked a lot about Massachusetts. Let's turn to some of the other states: to New York, um, Rhode Island, North Carolina, where there are some auctions and where there are some specific targets put in place. New York probably being the most mature compared to a lot of other states. Um, so New York and Massachusetts are the furthest ahead on this. What's going on in those other states? And how do they compare to the way Massachusetts has structured its leasing and its public policy? Well, so... Um so as we've talked about, uh, the thing that's exciting about Massachusetts is that later this year, there is going to be uh, the first commercial scale auction specifically for offshore wind, which is similar to the types of auctions that you see in Europe that really, again, have been so influential in creating the market. So that is that will be a historic moment. Um, no two ways about it. But there are so many other states that are right behind them looking looking at uh, this opportunity as well. And, and chief among those certainly would be New York, where... 
uh, Governor Cuomo came out in his State of the State address earlier this year and set a really ambitious goal of 2,400 megawatts of offshore wind by 2030, again, tied to the clean energy standard uh, where the state needs to get to 50 percent renewables in, in just over a decade, which is uh, which is a big lift, um, but one that uh, will certainly be easier to achieve if you bring offshore wind to the table. New York and Massachusetts are unique because they have such a great resource and because, as you said, there are certain energy constraints. So we're looking at potential nuclear closure in Massachusetts. Uh, You have the closure of the Indian Point nuclear power plant in New York. You have natural gas pipeline constraints. There are issues in both of those states that seem to make offshore wind particularly attractive. Is that what's driving public policy in both New York and in Massachusetts, some of those those uh, inherent constraints in the market? I think that is a big piece of it. Again, if you really are serious about moving your economy to uh, to being powered by renewables and you are uh, either transmission constrained or land constrained or otherwise, you know, will find it difficult to bring really large scale new renewable resources uh, to the table, you need to look offshore. Um, that's not the only reason, though. And I do think uh, the economic development potential is really something that uh, that policymakers and politicians uh, like Governor Baker and uh, Governor Cuomo are, are taking a hard look at as well. Uh, there are, um, you know, uh, really uh, an enormous number of jobs in in offshore wind potentially that could be brought to those areas if they achieve first mover status. And that's really what some of these states are looking at as well is sort of as this uh, as this industry starts to grow and mature, where will the jobs go? Who will be first? Where where will the hub be? And um, that's uh, without a doubt part of the attractiveness for states like Massachusetts and New York. Let's just uh, step back for a second and talk about the federal level then, since we've mostly been talking about states, because obviously we have a new administration. We don't exactly know what their attitude is. And in fact, you know, there's been the the Trump administration, my understanding is, has has had largely negative things to say about wind, but there may be some glimmers, in fact, and specifically with offshore wind of of hope, I suppose. Uh, but either way, what is the federal government's role in offshore wind? Uh, how much influence does it have and how much could it impact the growth of this market? Well, I, I think we have to start from the premise that it's difficult to take any uh, real guesses about where the Trump administration is going to land on any particular issue. But uh, offshore wind's kind of uh, an interesting one, I think, to to put a lens on uh, how uh, President Trump and his administration will look at the opportunity. So. Um, uh, to your question about the federal government's role, primarily their role in offshore wind is through uh, the Department of Interior and the off, uh, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, which uh, or BOEM um, or BOEM as as people call it in the industry, who uh, leases the areas uh, in the water for development of offshore wind, and they've been doing this um, for a number of years. And really, that whole BOEM leasing process was actually itself a result of the Cape Wind project as well, which was. Simply Simply proposed for an area without a competitive process, and and that had a number of consequences as well that led to the situation where we have uh, today a federal agency that is that raises revenue, that determines competitive interest, and uh, you know in the same way that for decades we've leased uh, offshore areas for oil and gas exploration, we're now doing that for offshore wind. 
The other area that the federal government will have an influence on offshore wind is really through the permitting process. And when you look at the lead times for projects and, uh, you know, Shale, you referenced, you know, projects taking a decade earlier. And I think now in Europe, you see those timelines much, much faster from from conception to uh, commercial operation. You can be down five, even four years, something like that. Um, but in the U.S., we, we as we look at it now, the industry sees the permitting process is probably the lead timeline driver for um, for uh, development of offshore wind. So the federal government, both through its leasing authority and through its permitting authority, will have a, a significant influence on the pace and location for where offshore wind takes off. Well, we, we do have some, some glimmers of hope here. And just yesterday, uh, BOEM and the Interior Department announced winners of an auction off of uh, a lease auction off of the coast of North Carolina, and Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke said uh, he had a lot of positive comments about the future of offshore wind as it related to a broader renewables strategy and an all-above strategy for the for the president. So although we've seen massive budget cut announcements coming out of the White House, we do see an Interior Secretary who is seems to be supportive of offshore wind, and that's one uh, sign in favor of this industry. So what other signs should we be looking for over the next year or a couple of years in Massachusetts and in other states and coming out of the federal government that shows us that we are on a path to building a real offshore wind industry here in the U.S.? So my first prediction would be uh, that the contracts that are awarded uh, under the Massachusetts competitive auction process that will take place later this year will get a lot of attention and will send a strong signal as to whether these are projects that can be competitive in the United States energy market. We don't know for sure, of course, where those prices will come in, but we're talking about large enough projects and credible enough players you have not only Dong, who we talked about, but also uh, a company called Vineyard Wind, which is backed by Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners uh, at the table, as well as Deepwater Wind with their track record in the U.S. And those folks are going to be duking it out and 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 hopefully driving to contracts that look like something that can be a replicable model for offshore wind in the United States. Alicia Barton is the co-chair of the clean tech practice at the global law firm Foley Hoag. She is the former CEO of the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. This was fun. With Shale Khan, I am Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Energy Transition from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us.